Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today we have three very different cases to talk about. Uh, the first really involves two cases that have been decided dealing with social security benefits for surviving spouses of same-sex couples. Yes, we are still dealing with that. The next deals with a Polish family law case that goes all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. And finally, we'll talk about the Prison Rape Elimination Act and some really troubling facts in a case involving a transgender inmate. This week is also Transgender Awareness Week, and of course the 20th marks Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is a day to honor the memory of those members of the community who've lost their lives to acts of anti-transgender violence. At Legal, we remember the primarily trans women of color who are lost to transphobic bigotry and violence. Trans Lives Matter this week on Transgender Day of Remembrance and every single day of the year. We have a lot to discuss coming up, so let's dig right in. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Towards the end of the semester here, things winding up pretty soon. Yeah, you look all business uh, casual, business formal. You have on a tie teaching that contracts I, I course. I always wear a tie when I teach. Because uh, years ago, we, we had a new dean who came into New York Law School and he looked around and he said, I've never seen such an informally dressed faculty. Aren't you modeling professional attire for your students? And ever since then, I've always worn a tie when I teach. That's great. Well, good for you. I mean, I just got my ears pierced recently. If you can see them, I don't know. You yes. didn't compliment them yet, but... Um... I always, it goes through my head, my mom saying, no one will take you seriously if you pierce your ears. You can't be a professional. Um, so here we are, you you following um, your dean's advice and me rejecting my mom. Your mother's advice. <laughs> That's dangerous. It is. But, you know, no one took me seriously anyway. It's fine. Um so let's get right in. We've got a lot to talk about. These are some really interesting cases all over in terms of the content that we're discussing today. I wanted to give you um, a little bit of a chance before we go into the first one to, to say if there's anything that we should be watching at the Supreme Court right now. Well, uh, I've saved one of those for my up notes, so you know, we, we can talk about that later. <laughs> oh, no, I hope I didn't ruin the surprise, but... Um, I'll still be surprised. Just watch. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's launch right into the first case art. Um, President Biden's administration is still busy trying to undo many of the harmful policies, actions, litigation strategies of the Trump administration and its Department of Justice. It's actually hard to believe that this many years after Windsor and Obergefell, we would still be talking about and litigating over issues of equal access to federal benefits for same-sex couples, but here we are. Um, Art, so do you want to kick things off by telling us about the Social Security benefits story from Lawnuts? Yeah, this is a, a, a story that we reported about in the past, I believe. This is a campaign that was undertaken by Lambda Legal uh, back in 2018. They filed a pair of cases in different federal district courts on behalf of survivors from same-sex couples, whether they were married or, or prevented from marrying because of the unconstitutional bans on marriage equality. Uh, under the Social Security law, 
the survivor of a social security beneficiary is entitled to a monetary death benefit. It's not a huge sum, it's a few hundred dollars, but it's helpful to have extra money at that time. But in addition, uh, a continuation of benefits. Uh, if, if you have a couple where one was a social security beneficiary and the other, the, the spouse was not working in the workforce, not paying the payroll taxes, uh, they get to continue the social security benefits that their uh, deceased spouse was drawing. And if uh, they were getting benefits and their deceased spouse was getting greater benefits because they had a higher salary, they're entitled to step up to the higher level. So uh, being a surviving spouse can be financially very significant uh, if, uh, if the marriage is recognized. But there are two barriers. One is a transitional problem and one is a deeper retroactive problem. Uh, and of course, people have to remember that the Obergefell decision which held that there is a constitutional right to marriage equality, that same-sex couples have the same right to marry as different sex couples. That's based on the 14th Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War. So theoretically, that right has been there since 1868. It's just the Supreme Court didn't recognize it until 2015 when an appropriate uh, actually collection of cases came up before them. Uh, but theoretically, that means same-sex couples who would have married if it was possible, but were denied that because of unconstitutional bans on marriage equality, maybe they have a claim, or at least Lambda thought uh, it was worth testing out whether the surviving partner has a claim uh, if they married uh, after marriage equality became available in that state, but the nine month rule in social security kicked in and prevented the survivor from collecting benefits. The nine month rule, which is a statutory rule, is that if at the time that the beneficiary dies, uh, the, their, their marriage with their spouse had been less than nine months, the spouse isn't entitled to spousal benefits. And this is to prevent uh, enterprising, exploitive people from going around marrying dying people in order to get their social security benefits. So the, the marriage has to have lasted at least nine months. So what about same-sex couples who married as soon as it became possible, and then one of them died less than nine months later? And uh, the spouse would file for benefits, and the Social Security Administration said, we're sorry, under the statute, we have to turn you down. You haven't been married long enough. So Lambda wanted to argue that if they could show they would have been married much longer, if it had been legal where they were living, they should be entitled to the benefits. The tougher case are people who never married uh, because the uh, partner who was drawing social security benefits died before marriage equality came to their jurisdiction. Uh, and Lambda has uh, sought class certification uh, for both situations. And of course, there is a little overlap in those because they, they both depend on a court finding that people would have married if it was possible at a particular time, but it wasn't because of an unconstitutional uh, law against marriage equality. Uh, so the, there are overlapping classes, but the judges in both cases took notice of the other case and said, our class doesn't include the people in the other class. So everyone's covered in one or the other. So one of the cases, the Ely case, uh, which was filed in uh, the district court in Arizona, uh, Michael Ely and James Taylor had been together for a long, long, long time. And uh, they were 
virtually a married couple and everything but uh, but legal reality uh, until marriage equality came to Arizona. And people may remember Arizona is one of those states where after the district court ruled in favor of marriage equality, the, uh, the state government said, okay, we agree. And they started allowing people to marry. So this is uh, a state where we had marriage as a result of the litigation filed after the Windsor case, but before the Supreme Court decided Obergefell. Uh, and they didn't have to wait for the Ninth Circuit, which eventually did uh, affirm marriage equality cases from other states in the Ninth Circuit. So in Arizona, they were able to get married in uh, 2014. But unfortunately, uh, James Taylor, who was the uh, working member of, the, of this group, uh, Michael Ely was sort of the homemaker in the, in the family. And uh, Taylor was the person who was paying payroll taxes and was under Social Security. Uh, so Taylor had, had been diagnosed with cancer uh, back uh, well before marriage equality became available. He was, he was dealing with it. At the time they got married, he was still well, but he passed away six months after they got married. And so Michael Ely applies for a survivor benefit and to continue Taylor's Social Security monthly uh, checks because he was counting on those. And Social Security said, no, under the nine month rule, you had to be married for nine months. And he said, but if not for Arizona's unconstitutional law, we would have been married for much more than nine months. They were together for decades. Uh, so Lambda took that one on and uh, a class was certified of people who find themselves in an analogous situation. And the district court ruled in favor of Ely and Lambda. Uh, they said, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's equitable, it's fair. And uh, the Obergefell ruling, it's based on uh, the 14th Amendment, which was passed in 1868. And so we can say that they were unconstitutionally deprived of the right to marry at a time that they would have. They even contemplated going to California to get married uh, when it became available there earlier. But since Arizona wouldn't have recognized it, they decided uh, we're not gonna spend the money on this trip. Evidently, they were pretty heavily dependent on Taylor's Social Security benefits. They didn't have a lot of money to travel around to do this. Uh, so uh, there's that case. And of course, uh, the Trump administration immediately filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the district court's decision was from May of 2020. And uh, the Trump administration uh, wants to wanted to limit uh, the application of marriage equality to the extent they could. Uh, the other case, uh, which was filed in the Western District of Washington State, uh, involved Helen Thornton and Marjorie Brown, uh, who were a longtime lesbian couple, lived together. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Marjorie Brown, who was the Social Security recipient there, passed away in 2006. Uh, the state of Washington didn't even have domestic partnership yet in 2006, although they did eventually have domestic partnership. And then of course, they uh, eventually they, they had same-sex marriage, but this was long after Brown had died. The question is, can Thornton apply for retroactive benefits on the theory that they would have married? And evidently, uh, Lambda put together a very persuasive case that they would have married if marriage equality had been available while Marjorie Brown was alive. But uh, the court did uh, certify a class and uh, eventually ruled in favor of Lambda and uh, of Helen Thornton. And the Trump administration appealed those. The Biden administration has withdrawn, dismissed the appeals. Uh, and you know, right at the end of October, 
And so uh, Lambda put out a press release and added information to their website. People who are in a position where uh, they might fit not only into the classes, but uh, the, uh, the dismissal opened up the possibility. And uh, we think that the Social Security Administration will be doing this because this is consistent with the position of the Biden administration generally on marriage equality and on the implication of the marriage equality decisions. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have applied in the past. Uh, they, they probably will waive the statute of limitations for some period of time. Uh, so the people who could make a claim that they would have been married at least nine months and, and definitely longer than nine months at the time that their partner who was the social security beneficiary died can now apply to get benefits. How far retroactive they'll be, I'm not sure. And just how much work was involved even after Obergefell to make sure that LGBT people actually were equal under the law and how many, you know, <clears throat> it was one thing to get the Obama administration to go through and change, you know, regulations that they could change, but then things that were federal statutes often, you know, it, if they had gendered language in the statute, it was, it's complicated to get those things uh, taken care of. And this is one of those cases that has just gone on for a really long time. And thank goodness for Lambda Legal and other litigation groups that have been doing this. But um, yeah, it's, it's a tough road, particularly where a lot of these plaintiffs are older already. And to have to be litigating this and they're living, like you said, you know, if they're already living hand to mouth, um, it's it, this is a real, challenge and it really impacts people's lives right i mean it's it's difficult to live solely on social security benefits but the amount is such that you know if, if people already own a home or they they have a low rent or something like that they could scrape by yeah all right well let's take a little break and when we come back we are going to talk about a case of international intrigue all right, we're back. Readers of Law Notes are familiar with the fantastic uh, coverage that we do um, of international human rights cases and issues. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about a European Court of Human Rights ruling in a case involving the parenting rights of a lesbian mother in Poland. Um, in 2019, Poland's right-wing populist law and justice party and the local Roman Catholic clergy passed a whole bunch of resolutions over a hundred provinces declaring themselves LGBT free. And uh, back in September, there were reports about how many of those local governments in Poland were rescinding these ordinances after the European Union threatened to cut off millions in euros in funding for these local and provincial governments. And, you know, Poland is not alone in, in acting against the rights of LGBTQ people in Europe. We've seen reports of Hungary uh, cracking down on LGBTQ rights following a similar right-wing populist uprising. So I'm really interested to hear about this case. Um, Art, can you, can you give us a little bit of a, it's a, it's a doozy. Yeah, this is, uh, this is one of those cases where uh, we're dealing in, in the area of family law, where judges have an enormous amount of discretion uh, in terms of their fact-finding function, especially in terms of determining what's in the best interest of children, which is usually the standard almost universally around the world when uh, there is a custody dispute. 
uh, incident to a divorce. So this is a case, uh, and the official name is Case of X versus Poland. That is, it is so dangerous being an out LGBT person in Poland that the, uh, the mother in this case, lesbian mother, it turns out, uh, is being allowed to proceed anonymously to preserve her, uh, her confidentiality. So uh, X married a man in 1993 who is identified in the decision as Z. Uh, no, as Y. I'm forgetting Z is the subsequent girlfriend of the wife. Okay, got to keep these straight. Uh, and, and Eric Worsthorn, who wrote the opinion for us, uh, refers to uh, X as the applicant, just to avoid getting too confused with alphabetical references in this case. But uh, and I was uh, going to correct you when you said you've got to keep them straight. Yes, I've got to keep them gay, but not all of them are gay. The husband isn't definitely. So uh, they had four children in their marriage. And uh, eventually the marriage broke up in 2005. A custody dispute arose and was in the courts. Uh, and at the same time, the applicant became involved in a relationship with a woman who was identified as Z in the court. Uh, in April 2005, the applicant filed for divorce. They had four kids at the time. Uh, the applicant's parents, that is the children's grandparents, the grandparents of the, of the mother, instituted proceedings seeking custody of the children. And on October, on April 28, 2005, a Polish district court granted the parents temporary custody. And both the applicant and her husband appealed that decision. They said, just a minute, you know, one of us, but not the grandparents. Uh, on June 16, 2005, the lower court's decision was quashed. And a Polish appellate court said, although the family had been going through a difficult period, Due to the impending divorce, both parents had been caring for their children properly. No justification for such a profound interference by the authorities in the children's removal and placement in the custody of the grandparents. So then on June 6, 2005, the applicant was granted a no-fault divorce with full parental rights in custody, while the husband's parental rights were restricted, but the husband applied for a change of custody. And uh, a Polish court obtained expert opinion, which was not favorable to the applicant. And this was expert opinion that tended to believe that it's bad for kids to be confronted with a mother with the same sex partner. Uh, but the, the experts, the way they phrased it, they found the children were more attached to the father and that the applicant could retain custody only if she, quote, decisively corrects her attitude, excludes Z from family life, that is her partner, excludes Z from family life, and continues psychological therapy aimed at improving her relations with the children. And they said, if her behavior didn't change for the better, it would be necessary to give direct care to the father for the best interest of the children and for their further correct social and emotional development. So basically, the court in adopting this is saying it's dangerous for kids to be raised in a household with a lesbian couple. Uh, and on October 16, 2007, the Polish court granted the husband's application, gave, giving him full parental rights and custody, restricting the applicant's parental rights and custody, limiting visitation. They claimed the children preferred to live with their father. And they referred to the applicant's reluctance, quote, to abandon her excessive intimacy with Z. 
in order to improve her relations with her children and the destructive influence that her relationship with Z had on the children. This Mir is wild. Mirroring the expert opinion. Oh my God. Uh, in fact, the Polish court faulted the applicant for forcing her children, quote, to be nice to Z and show her respect. So the applicant appealed, of course, on the grounds that she had always been the primary caregiver for the children, that the father did not spend time with the children or left them actually with her parents who had originally petitioned for custody. At the hearing on the appeal, the, uh, the husband acknowledged that the youngest child was actually closest to the mother and taking custody of him, although possible, would be difficult. But the appellate court dismissed X's appeal. And uh, in May 2008, the applicant filed an application challenging the impartiality of the judge who had been presiding over the proceedings at the trial level. Uh, that judge allegedly knew the applicant's parents, who, of course, had petitioned for the children in the first place. But the Polish district court denied this application as well and the applicant lost her appeal. Meanwhile, the three oldest children moved in with the, with the father, but the applicant refused to return her youngest child to her former husband and initiated a second custody proceeding seeking modification of the custody order as to her youngest child, identified as D, this is the, a son. She said D had always lived with her, had strong ties to her, did not want to live with his father, and uh, a private psychologist confirmed that D had a very strong bond with his mother. So the court appointed a guardian to assess D. Uh, the, the child recounted a violent incident when his father attacked Z, his mother's girlfriend. Uh, and uh, D clearly established a strong bond with his mother and fear of his father. But the judge dismissed the application to modify custody uh, in the interim while proceedings were pending. Uh, but shortly thereafter, the judge ordered the court guardian to remove D from the mother's care. And the court guardian took Chile. He actually showed up at kindergarten and pulled the kid out of his class and handed him over to the applicant's former husband. D was six years old at the time. Uh, now the Polish court sought a new expert opinion, which was submitted in March of 2009 and the experts concluded that both of the parents had similar parenting abilities, but it would be better for Dee to live with his siblings, you know, the older children who were living with the father. And the father was more important, quote, for the child's building of his male role model. So then there was a hearing on the second application. The father testified that the applicant's parents and Dee's older siblings took Dee to school, picked him up, he would sleep at his maternal grandparents' house when Y had to work night shifts. And Y opined that the applicant should not be allowed to raise children with Z, stating a child should be raised by a man and a woman, not by two women or two men. It is for natural reasons. We were created that way. So this was the testimony of the father. The judge dismissed the application to modify custody of D, and the applicant appealed again this time arguing that the lower court had discriminated against her based on her sexual orientation. But the appellate court dismissed this final appeal in September 2009. So basically, she did not have custody of any of the children at that time. But in 2013 and 2017, the two youngest children moved to live with the mother and her partner, Z, with their father's consent. 
But she had meanwhile filed an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights. And here we should mention for those who may not be familiar, the European Court of Human Rights enforces a treaty between various countries in Europe, including Poland, on uh, the protection of human rights. And Article 8 of the convention provides protection for private life. And Article 14 uh, is a sort of an equal protection clause provision. And uh, so she was suing under uh, protection for private life and under equal protection under the convention. Uh, Poland acknowledged that it had interfered with the applicant's rights under Article 8 of respect for private life, but maintained that the domestic court's decisions regarding custody were lawful and consistent with the children's best interests. Arguments totally rejected by the European Court of Human Rights. They held the applicant's sex life and sexual orientation were predominant in the first set of proceedings concerning D and his siblings. And when coupled with the expert opinions, the inescapable conclusion said the court, is that her sexual orientation and relationship with another woman was consistently at the center of deliberations in her regard and omnipresent at every stage of the judicial proceedings. So she was treated differently from other parents based upon her sexual orientation in violation of the convention. And this was not justified. The, the Polish courts wanted the applicant to cut off her relationship with Z in order to retain custody of her children. This is interference with private life and with the right to form a family. And although the European Convention has not yet been construed authoritatively to uh, require uh, treaty, uh, treaty signatories to uh, allow same-sex marriage, they do have to allow some form of family life for same-sex couples. And in fact, to the extent of having something like domestic partnerships or civil unions, although some countries are not yet in compliance with that. Uh, further, while a new relationship partner's role in a child's life is, of course, relevant to custody decisions, the Polish courts only analyze the effect of the relationship of a same-sex partner on the children, rather than looking at Z's own effect on the children as a person. Uh, and the Polish courts views that Y had a larger role in the children's lives and that his relationship was more important to D to provide a male role model was labeled by the court as stereotypical and not supported by the evidence. So in addition to finding a violation of the convention, they ordered Poland to pay X 10,000 euros for non-pecuniary damages. Uh, she had also challenged the impartiality of the trial judge uh, once again, but the claim was found to be beyond the time limit for raising the claim and was dismissed. There was a dissenting opinion by a judge who I think was is the Polish member of the panel, who was uh, unhappy with it, uh, said the applicant had failed to establish that the Polish court's decisions were based on her sexual orientation, which was uh, clearly rejected by the majority and its scrutiny of, of the record. Uh, but as a practical matter, this is important in sending a message to the Polish courts. Wow. Well, that's fascinating, and yeah, thank you for tracking that case and telling us about it. Um, there's another um, uh, international case um, that you report on in Law Notes that follows this one as well. Um, really good, good stuff. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, some criminal legal matters. 
All right, we're back. Bill Rold, who writes up the criminal legal cases in Law Notes, has several important cases in the November edition. Uh, this case that we're going to talk about today comes out of the 11th Circuit, and here is how the story begins. Quote, this is another nail in the coffin burying the aspirations of the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA, to protect LGBTQ inmates from assault by other inmates. And of course, LGBTQ inmates are among the most at-risk populations facing rampant sexual abuse in prison and in detention facilities. And to address this crisis, as I'm sure Art will talk about, Congress unanimously passed the Prison Rape Elimination Act, PREA, in 2003. Art, tell us about this case. And also, I'm just surprised that there was ever anything that was unanimously, unanimously passed in Congress from, I mean, as recently as 2003. Yeah, but the, the problem is the statute, it turns out, at least the way it's interpreted in some federal circuit courts, uh, is little more than an admonition to prison officials to try to protect people from rape in prison. Little more than an admonition. And, and I think part of the reason why it was unanimously passed was it doesn't create a private right of action for prisoners. They can't sue for violation of their rights. What it does is it, uh, it requires prisons to take steps to try to prevent sexual assaults uh, among inmates or with uh, inmates and staff. And as I say, admonition, admonition here, uh, there, are, there are regulations put out, there are statutory requirements, there are regulatory requirements put out by the Justice Department, which was charged with sort of fleshing out the statute. Uh, but it seems that they're honored in the breach. Uh, what, what Bill Rold observes, and he's written about so many of these cases now, there is a pattern there. Uh, he's observed that uh, you ask any prison warden, you ask the person in charge, and they say, we have a zero tolerance policy for sexual assault. But then you find out that when you get down to the level of what happens in the prison itself, that there are things that the act says that you should do that they don't do. Well, they don't do seriously. They don't take seriously. One thing the act requires, every incoming inmate is supposed to be assessed with respect to the risk they may face based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, gender presentation, uh, physical characteristics, et cetera. What is the risk facing them of possible sexual assault in prison? And if they are an at-risk person to take steps to protect them. And this, this particular case, Cox against Nobles, is a prime example of how that promise is not being kept. Uh, we're told that Ronald Cox is a transgender woman. Uh, and uh, at the time that she was sent to her first prison, Georgia's Autry prison, she upfront requested protection under PREA upon her arrival. She had been receiving hormones. Her current presentation as a female with breasts and a feminine appearance made her a very likely target for sexual assault in an all-male prison. And uh, the standard procedure in, in pretty much the whole country is a transgender woman who has not uh, been surgically altered is gonna be sent to a male prison. Uh, a transgender woman who still has male genitals intact is not going to be sent to a women's prison, with rare exceptions in this country. Uh, so uh, she's going to be in a women's prison. And the attitude of the court, uh, Bill 
signals this in the second paragraph of his story, the sort of blasé, laissez-faire attitude of the court is, quote, Cox's identity as a transgender woman within these male prisons made her a target for sexual and other physical abuse she was forced to endure at the hands of other inmates. Okay, little if anything was done to protect her. She's supposed to be screened and not uh, put together with an inmate who is likely to assault her or who possibly assault her. Instead, she was selled without any screening with another inmate who threatened her with a weapon and sexually assaulted her badly enough that she had to be hospitalized. She files a grievance for the failure to separate her. She was then moved to a different prison, Central State Prison. Upon admission to the prison, she was, again, she requested PREA protection. She didn't get it. Other inmates assaulted her. She was kicked and punched. Officers did not intervene because according to the complaint she ultimately filed, there was only one officer watching four pods. Prisons tend to be understaffed. Uh, she grieved these events, but four months later, she was moved again to the Augusta prison. I mean, their solution to the problem seems to be keep moving her around, but they put her once again in a situation she, where she requested PREA protection. It was denied. She was put then in general population again. She was assaulted twice, once with a, a shank, a, an improvised knife. The unit manager conceded that she should be moved. She was shifted to a new cell, but in the same dorm as her attacker. She was attacked again by the same inmate, injured critically, hospitalized for six days. On her return, she was placed, quote, on lockdown in a Priya dorm. So evidently in that prison, they had a separate dormitory where they put the Priya people, people at risk. Uh, but uh, after she was released from prison, she filed suit. And this is this timing was significant. If she files suit while she's in prison, she has to exhaust all internal prison remedies before she can file suit. But once she's out of prison, the Prison Litigation Reform Act doesn't apply to her anymore. It only applies to litigation by prisoners. So now she can go directly to federal court. And uh, she filed the complaint with all these allegations of all the things that happened to her and the way she was denied protection under PREA. Uh, defendants filed a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim and requested a stay of discoveries. The district court granted the discovery stay, which means she was not able to get access to the prison records that would document, for example, her hospital stays and her grievances and everything else. The judge then granted the motion to dismiss on qualified immunity grounds. They Presumably they said there is no 11th Circuit or Supreme Court decision directly on point, which establishes that it violated her Eighth Amendment rights. Uh, in order to uh, deny her protections guaranteed by PREA. So no constitutional claim was stated. In order to sue uh, prison officials under the constitution, uh, you have to show that they're violating a clearly established constitutional right. Well, how about, how about suggesting that uh, violating the express statutory and regulatory requirements of PREA by not screening transgender prisoners and protecting them uh, violates clearly established statutory and constitutional rights. In fact, the lead case on the constitutional rights of inmates, the old Farmer versus Brennan case from decades ago, the Supreme Court said it violates the Eighth Amendment rights 
of a transgender prisoner if a prison had reason to know that they were at risk and didn't take steps to protect them. And they said, uh, it's enough that by visual inspection of this prisoner, you could tell, you could draw inferences. You don't have to know that a particular inmate is going to attack her. You don't have to know where the danger is going to come from. It's enough if you know that this inmate will be in danger and that you should stay, take steps to protect them. Maybe it, it means putting them in a more secure setting. Maybe it means not housing them with certain other types of inmates or you know, setting up a separate unit, depending on the size of the prison and how many at-risk prisoners there are. There are steps that can be taken. Uh, but in this case, the court said her, uh, you know, she appeals to the, uh, the Court of Appeals and the 11th Circuit, uh, the unanimous decision, I'm surprised, two of the judges were appointed by Obama, a unanimous decision saying that her pleadings were not factually specific enough to state a claim that uh, they were too conclusory, they were too generalized. But uh, Bill really picks it apart and says, a lot of this involves sort of the court averting its eyes from what's right in front of it. This is gross negligence by the prison people, but gross negligence won't do it. You have to show deliberate indifference. Wow. And is it deliberate indifference to totally ignore the records from the previous prison and not take steps? Uh, I don't know if a cert petition is going to be filed in this case, but the Supreme Court has not been particularly interested since Farmer v. Brennan. They've had a lot of cert petitions involving transgender litigation in prisons, and they uh, have not been interested. They didn't even grant cert in the Edmo case, where right. the Ninth Circuit ordered a gender confirmation surgery for the first time in the country. Right. So uh, they don't touch transgender issues at the moment. Yeah. Are the, um, is the plaintiff represented by counsel here? Uh, I think by the 11th Circuit, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure what the situation was at the trial level. Mm-hmm. Most of these cases start as pro se cases. Right. At, at some point, sometimes you'll get counsel appointed by the district court, but district courts uh, are not likely to appoint counsel unless they think this is a case that's likely to go to discovery and you're going to need counsel to, to do depositions and stuff like that. Right. All right. Well, this was very heavy art. I'm hoping that you have a uplifting law note, but if it involves the Supreme Court, I'm skeptical. Yeah. Well, this yeah, our of note is uh, a prominent transgender rights attorney here in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, former legal board member of Jillian Weiss mm-hmm. uh, has filed a cert petition on a case out of the Fifth Circuit in which she is representing a transgender litigant, uh, as she frequently does, it's core of her practice. Uh, The uh, litigant Elijah Anthony Olivares is a transgender man asserting a Title VII discrimination claim based on his termination of employment and his treatment regarding a medical leave application, which was specifically uh, to uh, to have treatment as part of his gender transition. Uh, His employer is T-Mobile USA. And uh, he claims he was suggested to harassment uh, in the workplace because of his gender identity by a specifically named biased individual named in the complaint. And uh, the employer's human resources department had not taken any action to put a stop to it. He complained about it. Uh, that when he requested medical leave for a procedure related to his gender identity, a specifically named individual raised questions about his gender identity and the entitlement to leave that suggested possible bias. 
uh, and his leave requests, he said, were processed in an untimely and incorrect manner. And so he claims his discharge was due to his gender identity, but uh, the court threw out the case on a motion to dismiss saying he did not allege facts regarding the treatment of similarly situated individuals in the workplace outside of his protected category, i.e. a comparator. The court said here in the Fifth Circuit, the District Court and the Court of Appeals on appeal, in the Fifth Circuit, if you are making a discrimination claim, you must, in your complaint, allege a comparator who was treated better than you, a comparator being a similarly situated person with respect to every salient characteristic except gender identity. And that is just not the law in most other districts. And the Supreme Court has never said that's the law. The Supreme Court has said the pleading requirements is that you allege facts from which inferences can be drawn, uh, constituting a plausible discrimination case. But what this court is doing is virtually imposing the summary judgment standard. And in the summary judgment standard, you've had access to discovery. You've had access to many more facts that you can plead. You can be much more specific. Many of the facts that are relevant may be in the possession of the employer and, and not available to you. And normally uh, you don't get discovery, uh, substantive discovery until after surviving a motion to dismiss. So the standard that the Fifth Circuit is imposing poses an enormous barrier to all discrimination plaintiffs, not just transgender discrimination plaintiffs. And uh, in her cert petition, which was filed in October, uh, Jillian Weiss has documented the circuit split on this issue, that there are several circuits that say you, uh, you don't have to allege a comparator. If you allege facts from which inferences of bias can be drawn, that's a, that should be enough to get you past a uh, motion to dismiss. And maybe you can discover comparators once you're doing discovery after surviving a motion to dismiss. So this is a cert petition that really should be granted, but the employer filed a statement that they don't, they're not gonna file a response, which usually means that the employer's counsel has told them this, this is not going anywhere. So don't bother filing a response. Uh, whether it goes somewhere, hard to tell. As I just said, with respect to the 11th Circuit case, the Supreme Court has not granted cert petitions in transgender cases. The one that they did was the, uh, the, uh, the case uh, that ended up uh, Amy Stevens before the Supreme Court, but that was consolidated with cases uh, from other circuits. And that was an appeal by the employer. And I think, you know, you look at the, at the Supreme Court, they're more likely to file a cert petition by an employer uh, that is lost than by a, uh, an employee that is lost in the lower courts. The, the management tilt of the Supreme Court in employment discrimination cases is rather extreme to the extent that Congress has passed legislation in the past overruling Supreme Court employment discrimination decisions because they felt the court did not uh, provide enough protection against discrimination for employees. So we'll see. Uh, could, could get a grant of cert and it could come relatively quickly since the employer decided not to file a response. This case should be sent out to conference relatively quickly. So we may hear something about it. And, and the case for those who are, who are keeping track is Olivares versus T-Mobile USA. Jeez, I got rid of my T-Mobile long ago. <laughs> well, evidently they don't have a good record on transgender issues. Oh, jeez. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Art. And now, um, are you you have any big Thanksgiving plans? Oh, a friend is making dinner, and it'll be a relatively small party. But and apparently, uh, you said you had to write a, a contract exam. Yeah, my last contract exam because I'm retiring from the full time faculty, so I don't expect to be teaching contracts in the future. But I will be teaching sexuality in the law this spring, so I still have to put together a supplement for my spring, for the casebook for the spring. Jeez, what's changed? <laughs> I'll only teach that one course, so uh, right. you know, one day a week. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next next month. Happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with art next month and more in the interim.